Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhodge of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, today, I have uh, Julie uh, Christensen uh, with me. She is an expert on anger and has done some pretty amazing things. Um, from Julie's background, she has, um, she's been a writer. She's just told me recently that she's written uh, several books. She has a training program on anger. And I think anger is something that I I don't think that we openly want to discuss, but I thought having Julie on this is a good opportunity for us to really get familiar with this whole topic. So Julie, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. So what well, Julie is in not too far from me here in Niagara. And um, so the topic of anger, I, you know, I think there's so many elements to it. And I know whether, you know, you're coaching or, you know, by the time you get up in the day, you're constantly in contact with people. So unfortunately, there's opportunity or should I say ongoing opportunity to, to, I call it, you know, if only we can kind of know the elements of anger from mild irritation to explosion. But generally, we think the negative about anger, which really anger can be quite positive when it's channeled in, in the proper way. For sure. You For know, sure. So, so tell me, tell me kind of, so you're a psychotherapist, you speak, you train. She's also a clinical supervisor for a psychotherapist um, with the college that I'm at. So tell me kind of your path and what kind of got you along the path to end up doing uh, the kind of work that you did, that you do. Well, I always knew I was going to work in the helping field in one way or another. And I think I was eight when I told my mother that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> and so she, because my mother wanted to make sure we had at least one doctor in the family, jumped on that and uh, took me to see a psychiatrist to do like an information interview. So wow. I remember showing up with my little tape recorder and my microphone and I was going to interview him. And, uh, the first thing he said to me was, no recordings. <laughs> he scared the life out of me. Um, and so I asked him some questions and he gave me some information. But he told me I was going to have to go to medical school mm. and then get, you know, do a specialization. And at eight years old, I already knew there was no way I was going to medical school. Mm. It was not for me. And, uh, and there are two reasons for that. One is because I don't like bodily fluids and two, I don't like blood. <laughs> well, those are the two major fluids, isn't it? Right? Good, so, good, good point. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, at eight years old, I'm thinking, no way, I'm not going to medical school. I'm not looking at smelly body parts and I'm not dealing with blood. It's not going to happen. So I told my mom, yeah, I'm still going to work with people. I'm just going to find another way to do it. And so that was always my mission a little bit. And so when I went to university for my undergrad, I, I did a double major in English and psychology. And the reason being, they said, uh, if you can't get a job in psychology, at least you'll have a fallback and you can teach. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I need a teachable. I'll, I'll study English. Um, and I actually, I love the English language. I love to write. I've always been a writer. I've been writing since I was a little kid. Uh, and so it was kind of a natural fit. 
Um, but in my final year of university, I got a job working for a residential mental health program in Ottawa. And I worked there for about four years with people with very severe mental health issues that were coming out of hospital and reintegrating into society. And uh, they needed to relearn their life skills. They needed to learn how to take the bus again and how to cook meals and how to grocery shop and how to take their medications without supervision, all those skills that they had lost while they were long-term in the hospital. And so I did that work for about four years. And it was during that four-year period that I stumbled on the anger program uh, we had some people living in the house. You know, when you've got 10 people living together, mm. there's bound to be conflict. Yeah. And so the conflict escalated and we needed to address it. And there were no services. There were no programs. There wasn't anything out there. We're talking 1993. Mm. No, it was, it was, yeah, about 1993, 1994. Uh, there was nothing out there. There was The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. Oh my goodness. I haven't thought of that book in like forever. <laughs> yeah, that was the only book out there. Yes. Um, and no offense to Harriet Lerner, but it was so painful to read. I couldn't finish it. Mm. Um, so it wasn't all that useful to me, especially for people with severe mental health issues that have cognitive issues and other challenges, right? Interfering with their ability to process. Um, so that wasn't much help to me. So I, I dug around and tried to find some resources and there wasn't much. And what I did find, we kind of, you know, put together as a hodgepodge and, and made a program. Mm. And from that, I think I was hooked. Mm. Just looking at the different aspects of anger that I had never really considered before, learning a little bit about myself as I went through the, the, um, the process of building a program for my clients, looking at what was working for them, and why it was working for them, and then adapting that into something that was that would be um, more transferable to the to the broader population. So, for the average person that doesn't know much about anger, it's something that we all deal with all the time. What do, what are some of the things? Like, let's say you're, I'm coming to you as a uh, say an individual, or I'm going into a company, and I'm gonna maybe there's been a lot of conflict. What are some of the basic things that I need to know about anger? Well, the absolute first thing I would say to everyone is we have to stop treating anger as though it's a behavior. Mm -hmm. We talk about anger management. Mm -hmm. Anger management is a misnomer. We're trying to manage something that comes naturally. We don't manage happiness. We don't manage fear. We don't manage sadness. We express it. We feel it. We express it. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly when we get angry, everybody wants it managed when really we should be feeling it and expressing it. Mm. And the reason that we feel anger is because one of our rules have been broken. Our expectations haven't been met. Someone has offended us, right? It's not, mm -hmm. we don't just get angry for no reason. Anger has a purpose. It, it serves to let us know that our rules have been broken or violated and that we need to take action. And so it makes sense that people act out when they're angry. That's what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. They just are acting out in ways that are harmful and offensive and potentially dangerous to others. So what we do with Anger Solutions is we try to turn that concept of anger as behavior on its head and take away the shame uh, and the stigma that comes from, you know, people being told that they have anger management issues, right? Instead, we just say, look, Everybody gets angry. I get angry a oh, hundred times a day. <laughs> we you all know, do. <laughs> we just, I just have better ways of expressing it. 
-hmm. And uh, if I try to focus only on the behavior that you're doing in the moment, what's going to happen is that the next time you get angry, you're going to need a specific solution for that thing. And then you're going to need a specific solution for that thing. Whereas if I just teach you that your anger is acceptable, the way you feel is okay, I validate that. And then I give you a strategy for how to solve the problem that caused your anger. Now we're doing something that's more constructive, right? And so we focus on, on a few things. We focus on shifting the belief systems of a person because belief is the basis of action. And what you believe about anger is going to determine how you behave when you feel that way. So if you feel like, or if you believe that the only way you can get people's attention is to throw a fit, then when you want people's attention, you're going to throw a fit, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to get your needs met, but you're doing it in a way that is belligerent, it's aggressive. Now, if I can, if I can show you how to get your needs met without having the fallout from what happens after you act in an aggressive way, most people are willing to try that. And so we offer alternatives, we offer challenges to the belief set, uh, we also do offer shifts in behavior, but those shifts in behavior come after the shift in belief, right? If I can shift your belief system, then your behavior will follow, right? And the other thing is that if, if we focus on solving the problem instead of fixing a feeling, then when you solve the problem, your anger will take care of itself, hmm. right? What happens though, is if we bottle it up, we walk away, you know, we take a deep breath and we count to 10 and we walk away. You're still angry. <laughs> you haven't solved the problem. So the anger lingers and you have to keep finding ways to manage it, right? Whereas if you would just address the problem and mm -hmm. try to solve the problem that incited the anger in the first place, the anger would take care of itself. And so we're focusing on the wrong things, I think, when we, when we try to engage people in this in this false concept that is anger management um in in my mind anger management is really a it's almost a dangerous concept because we send people to a class you know someone gets in trouble with the law they get mandated by the courts to go to six weeks of anger management and the, the judge says something like, you know, I don't want to see you in my courtroom again. Mm. <laughs> well, okay, so this person has been making poor choices all their life, which is why they're on a revolving door through your court. And you tell them to go to six weeks of anger management and you think that six sessions is going to change them for life. Hey, man, if that were, if that were true with going to the gym, mm. I would be, you know, I would be model ready. Because I've done at least six sessions at the gym. Do you know what I'm saying? And I've also done that periodically through my life. <laughs> right. And you know, it's that old statement that yeah. you don't go to the gym once and be healthy for life. Right. And it's true as well of behavior change. If we, want to, if we want to change behavior, we have to change the belief that guides the behavior. And we can't do that in six sessions. Mm -hmm. It just, it can't be done. Um, so... I think one of the key things for, for HR professionals, for example, to understand is that when people come to you in a workplace setting and they're complaining or they're angry or they're agitated or whatever, 
you want to find out what their expectations are of the workplace. You want to find out what their belief systems are and what's guiding them in their expectations. You want to find out what their rules are for engagement and figure out which of those rules have been, have been violated because mm -hmm. they're not angry for nothing. Yeah. Right. They're not angry for nothing. There's a reason there. And if you can figure that out, and then have a conversation with them, perhaps they just need to go to the person who can help them solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And that would be the person who did whatever it was that made them angry in the first place, right? So giving them some guidance around how to resolve conflict and to do that active problem solving within the workplace would be very helpful. So I think, I, I, what, what a good point, right? Let's, let's not just give people, here's 10 tips and you apply them and you, know, you walk away and it's gonna be solved. That seething space within your body is real. And yeah. we've all been, you know, like I always go to like from mild irritation to I can probably get over that quicker to you're really kind of wrong to me when you did X, Y, Z. That's real. And yeah. that really, that we hold on to that and we tell it to everybody we see, you know, and, and then we're talking to our spouse about it or we're talking to our children about, it, you know, sure. and we're carrying that around. And, it, and that's not helpful, obviously, on lots of levels. What I'm interested in is, okay, so we all have models that we kind of adapt to. So growing up, my dad was a screamer. So for me, anybody that screams, I have a visceral shutdown reaction to don't scream at me. Right. Right. So sometimes I even react when the voice gets loud and the person's not angry. Mm -hmm. So what kind of things in your program do you expose people to or teach them to help them you know, once you're triggered, and obviously a trigger is a space that we go to in our brain that brings us back to a space um, that reminds us that, whoa, something went wrong. What, what, or what are some of the things that you know is helpful for examples like mine? Well, I think in every case that the response is the same, um, whether you are being triggered by someone else's angry behavior or, or their anger response, or you're feeling an anger response yourself, mm -hmm. um, I, I teach a model in anger solutions called TSA. Mm -hmm. And that stands for think, say, and ask. Think, say, and ask. So the thinking part is the part that determines everything else that happens afterwards. You can't mm -hmm. say anything until you've processed, and you certainly can't ask for help until you've said what the problem is. So the thinking part is number one, what is happening? What's happening right now? And pull yourself emotionally away from it and just examine the facts of the situation. What's going on here right now? This is happening. This person appears to be angry. They just said blah, blah, blah. And they said it in this tone of voice, right? And, I, and I'm having a reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Second question is, what does it mean? What's happening and what does it mean? Because life has no meaning except the meaning that we give it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if it means nothing, chances are we're not going to get upset by it. But if it means something to us, either because we have a relationship with the person and we don't want that relationship to be damaged, or perhaps it's because of that memory that's been triggered. And so we assign a meaning to what's happening. Um, that that assignation of meaning is going to determine how we feel about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And what we tend to do then is we try to fix how we feel instead of solving the problem that we've identified. Mm -hmm. And so we ask, what's happening? What does it mean? How do I feel? 
and what would I like to do about it? What would, what is my desired outcome? How would I like this to turn out? Um, and so this is, this is a really important question because in every, in every case when we're dealing with interpersonal problems, if you remember I said that our expectations haven't been met or our rules have been violated, um, we have a desired outcome somewhere up here. We may not have articulated it and we might not have a really clear picture of what it is, but the only reason we're feeling upset is because we have an idea that there's something better, mm -hmm. right? And so if we can identify what that something better is and put our focus on getting to that outcome, now we have a roadmap for how to solve the problem, mm -hmm. right? So if I can say, what's happening? What does it mean? How do I feel? What do I want? What's my desired outcome? When I identify that, now my focus is, is off of trying to fix how I feel. Mm -hmm. And now it is on to what can I do to get that outcome? And so for every, every possible solution, and there are always many, for every possible solution that we have, in terms of getting to our desired outcome, we also have to ask two more questions. What's the worst thing that can happen if I do this thing? And this is where our brains always go. You know, we human beings, we're very negative thinkers. We always go to, this is the worst thing that can happen. Oh, if I say that to my boss, she'll fire me. <laughs> and then we don't do anything. Yeah. Right? Then we feel helpless and we continue to feel angry and nothing gets resolved. But the other side of that question is, what's the best thing that can happen if I do that thing? right? What's the best thing that can happen? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I talk to my mother, my mother will yell at me. Well, what's the worst thing that can happen if your mother yells at you? What's the best thing that can happen if your mom yells at you, mm -hmm. right? Maybe what's the best thing that can happen is you finally decide you're going to set boundaries with your mom mm -hmm. and you set those boundaries and, and they say, well, I can't do that. Well, what's the worst thing that can happen if you set a boundary, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. We can just continue to process until we get to a place where we're comfortable enough with the choice of action. And then and only then should we take a choice of action, right? We should never just sort of have that knee-jerk reaction and we all do it, I'm guilty of it as well, where something happens and right away my, my anger comes up and I am saying something or I'm doing something or I'm threatening to do something, <laughs> right? That I really don't want to do. Um, and then I have to step back and then do that TSA and go, okay, what's my desired outcome? What is it that I really want? Well, what I want is to drive safely from point A to point B. I want to work in a peaceful environment. I want a happy home. So mm -hmm. if those are the things that I want, what am I going to do to get to that outcome? And what's the worst thing that can happen if, if my plan fails? What's the best thing that can happen if my plan succeeds? Right. Which, and, which I love that because it's looking at both, both ends of the continuum, right? Absolutely. But I think our brain does go to the worst case scenario. If I stand up to that person that's raising their voice, they're probably going to, you know, maybe my little brain is saying they're going to scream louder or, you know, whatever. But in fact, they may say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was right. that loud because maybe they're a loud talker, right? Um, so, you're so you're so correct in saying that because we do really go to the negative oftentimes. For sure. And it's, it's fear, right? It's, it's, and I think a lot of that fear is the fear that is tied to the initial event mm -hmm. that happened. Like you said that your dad was a screamer. And so I'm sure every time your dad raised his voice, you felt fear. Mm -hmm. And so now when someone raises their voice, you also feel fear 
and you retreat the same way that you're that you did as a child mm-hmm. um, because it's safer to retreat than it is to than to to confront that behavior but we're adults now mm-hmm. and it's hard to step out of that inner child right and to say look you know it's okay for me to have boundaries it's okay for me to tell you that that behavior is unacceptable to me and you get to choose if you want to continue in a relationship with me and respect the boundaries that I've set for you, that's okay. It's okay to have that conversation, but it is still incredibly difficult to have that conversation. I think even for those of us who work in this field Mm -hmm. and have insights, if you will, into psychology and anxiety and stress and communication and relationships and all those things, it's still difficult to say, Hey, you know, when you spoke to me like that, I didn't like it. And I'd really appreciate it if you don't do that again. (laughs) It's such a simple conversation. It, but- it, it, it is absolutely, and we're, but we're all human beings and we're constantly working at it. And if, you know, if your child has come home late again or whatever, then you go into that, like, you're right. It's the fear mode and, and you know, what, what's, what's, what's the worst that could happen the next mm-hmm. time. Now I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about that gap. It's one thing to say, think about it, think about solutions, think about the worst. But once you're into that visceral or reactive state that your body goes into, I call it the surge. Mm -hmm. Once you're in the surge, you want want something to come of it so I can release that feeling that's um, bottling up in my body. So what kind of things or strategies should people consider? Or what do you again teach? Or what should people like HR or people like management in reference to conflict in the workplace use or even consider applying or teaching others in order to adjust that gap that happens. I think it's really small when people are triggered. It is. is. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the best way that I can answer this question is by giving you an example. So I I worked with um, a realtor for a couple of years and, uh, she um, she had had a, a motor vehicle accident and and was struggling with some of that self regulation, and so I, I taught her the TSA model, and um, and I did you know I did the full fifteen weeks of anger solutions coaching with her. Um, she took the TSA, and she made herself a little cue card, and she stuck it up on on the bulletin board in her office in front of her phone. So every time someone called, because that was her trigger is, you know, clients would call and say, you know, somebody was supposed to come over here and cut my grass for me today because the house is going to be showed on the weekend and, and that's supposed to get done. And you said that somebody was going to do it and they're freaking out on her and um, she's getting stressed and she's winding up and now she's having fight or flight or the surge as you call it. And she's trying to figure out how she can calm them down so she can calm herself down. Right. Um, And what she actually found worked for her was she started teaching TSA to her clients, Mm -hmm. which I thought was fabulous. So she would get this client on the phone and she would say, okay, now I want you just to take a deep breath. Take another deep breath for me. Now, just tell me very slowly and very clearly what's happening right now. And then she would take them through the questions and she said they would just, they would come right down. And they would be able to explain to her what their need was, why it needed to be met and how she could help them. And then she would say to them, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen if somebody doesn't come today? The house isn't being showed till Saturday. So if someone doesn't come today, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? If someone doesn't show up today, what's the best thing that can happen if somebody doesn't show up today? Oh, your neighbors don't get bothered by the sound of the lawnmowers. Okay, we can carry on, right? And so she worked through that with everyone and 
in effect taught herself, like she solidified that skill for herself by teaching it to her clients. Mm. And I think that what we really need, you know, this is where the take a deep breath and count to 10 comes in handy, right? It's not, it's really not useless information or a useless strategy. It just needs to be tied to something else. You can't just tell people take a deep breath and count to 10 and let that be the end of the strategy. Mm-hmm. The taking a deep breath is to reoxygenate your brain. So what happens when we get into fight or flight is that oxygen, oxygen is diverted away from the brain mm-hmm. and to the major organs in the body. It's also diverted away from the, from the extremities, which is why our hands get cold when we're anxious or we're, right? when we're angry because the oxygen is going here so that we can fight or flee. That's, that's mm-hmm. just an, an ancient mechanism. It's been there since the dawn of time. Can't change it. Um, but what happens when oxygen is diverted away from your brain is that you don't think very clearly. That's that gray swirl you go into. Yes, that your frontal <laughs> lobes yeah. that are responsible for executive function and decision-making and impulse control shut down. Now it's just your amygdala, which is at the back of your brain or the, the midpoint of your brain. And that is where survival lives, fear, anger, all your base emotions live there. And so your amygdala is running the show. You cannot allow your amygdala to run the show when you're angry at someone. You have to find a way to, um, to override that. And the way you override that is by taking a deep breath, mm-hmm. sending oxygen back up into your brain so that your executive function, your impulse control comes back online. It's almost like you're rebooting your, your brain systems when you take a couple of deep breaths and you just go, okay here's what, you know, this is what's happening. This is what it means. This is how I feel. This is what I want to do. This is the best thing that can happen. This is the worst thing that can happen. The beauty of this strategy is that when you get comfortable with doing it, it only takes maybe a second, maybe two for that process to happen in your brain. And then you've got your answer, Mm -hmm. right? It's basically the equivalent of taking a deep breath and counting to 10 is all the time you need to do that, that T part of the process all the way through from start to finish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then you can say something. Right. And hopefully that, some, that something that you say is going to be along the lines of, hey, Roxanne, I've got this problem and I really need your help with it. Are you willing to work with me to, to help me out on this? Mm-hmm. Hopefully you will say, sure, Julie, I'd like to help you. And then I can say, this is what the problem is. This is what I feel I need. This is how you can help me. Would you be willing to work with me so that these types of problems don't keep arising again? Hopefully we can have an adult discourse and work through that and come up with a solution. Mm -hmm. If not, at least I tried. Right. Yeah. So with employers, right. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm calling to consult about situations and maybe there's been a lot more conflict, there's been a lot more, maybe there's been a lot of change, um, you know, lots going on. And, and, you know, people, like you said, they go to, most of us go to protection when there's a lot of stress change, um, you know, with unions and, and management, sometimes lots of different things can happen. So for, for leadership, most companies have a policy on respectful behavior and things like that. But if there are environments or um, that say, let the, let's say there's a lot, been a lot more conflict or maybe a lot more arbitrations in the environment, 
what are some of the things that you would suggest to maybe HR leaders or just leaders generally listening to um, think about in order to address the concerns? I, I think number one, it is important to listen and really listen. Listen with, with the intent to understand rather than with the intent to reply. Um, to really pay attention and to validate people's emotional states. Mm -hmm. Just because you're validating their emotional state doesn't mean you agree with everything that they're saying. It just means that you're acknowledging that their feelings are real. And I think that is something that is so underrated in the world of work that, that workers, when they try to express how they feel and what they need, and they don't feel like they're, they're being validated and they feel like their, their um, points of view are minimized, that is where you see morale take a, a nosedive mm -hmm. and that people do become more combative because they're fighting for that right to be heard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it takes another layer and adds it on to what may already be a very tense and, and conflicting situation. Um, so listen, validate, problem solve, uh, redirect. There's nothing wrong with redirecting as long as you have first listened and validated, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If you redirect before you've given people an opportunity to, to explain or express how they truly feel, again, they're going to feel as though HR doesn't care. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, HR isn't there for me. Mm -hmm. They're there for the company. They're not there for me. And when you work for a company and that's how you feel, you, it's hard to get work done it's hard to show up, you know, it's hard to show up physically. It's hard to show up and be present when you don't feel like the company or the department that's supposed to be there for you actually cares about you. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, caring is more than policy. It's more than staff appreciation lunches mm -hmm. and, and those sorts of things. Caring is when the rubber hits the road and someone says, I'm feeling this way because these things are happening, that someone actually takes the time to listen, mm -hmm. to pay attention to what's happening, and to validate that emotional state. Um, I also think that it's important that HR professionals follow through on the policy. I've mm -hmm. seen so many companies, um, so many educational institutions, different sorts of, of organizations that have really beautifully written policy and they don't follow through. So many places that say we have zero tolerance for bullying, but bullying is rampant, right? If bullying is happening every second, seven seconds on the playground, every 25 seconds in the classroom, you cannot tell me that your school has a zero tolerance policy. <laughs> you just, you can't, <laughs> right? Because yeah. if it's happening every seven seconds, that the, there's no such thing as zero tolerance on the playground. Nobody's looking, they're not paying attention. And then when the students run and say, you know, this is happening to me, then the teachers say silly things like, well, what did you do, <laughs> right? And this happens in the workplace also. Mm -hmm. When a worker comes and says, I'm being harassed by my coworker and they're interfering with my ability to get my job done, they're, they're intercepting memos and, and notices so that I'm looking like an idiot, they're, they're sabotaging my work. 
And then HR turns around and says, well, what did you do to them? It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. And, and so we have to hear them out. We have to validate. And we have to look at the policies as more than just something that's beautiful, you know, beautifully written and beautifully printed and placed in a manual where everyone can see it. The policy in a manual where everyone can see it means absolutely nothing. It's like a, a Bible in the, in the chest of drawers, you know, at a hotel. Mm-hmm. So it's there, <laughs> right? You open up the drawer, you see the Gideon there, you close the drawer, you go back to bed. It <laughs> makes no difference in your life if you don't actually pick it up. And open it and read it. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's important for people to actually know what the policies are and to enforce those policies and to make sure that those policies have teeth, because if they don't, then your employees will not trust you. And if they don't trust you, they can't work for you. And I think, you know, the important thing that I hear you saying, uh, Julie, is that follow through means conversation. And then whether it means, you know what, I do, you know, we do have that policy about harassment and let's review it. Let's, let's talk about it and say, you know, okay, do you, you know, do you have an understanding of it? And maybe the employee hasn't read it per se. And you open up that conversation to say, okay, well, let's, let's, maybe if you haven't, let's talk about it. Okay. What part of this do you think is happening for you? And then you can narrow down even to open up the conversation to have the employee go, well, you know what, that did kind of happen, but oh, but that didn't happen. But I think you're right. If we go automatically to not just saying, hearing the person out, it's less likely that you're going to go to solution because that person's already upset also to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to say too, that one of, one of my pet peeves, when I, when I have people sent to me, um, they usually are sent to me as the last resort, (laughs) right? Oh yeah, there's this anger specialist. We'll send them to her because everything else we've tried hasn't worked, right? Um, Which I don't mind. I don't mind that at all. Give me your most difficult cases and I'll work with them. Um, But my point is that uh, I get very uptight when when, um, businesses or or institutions or I don't know, um, mostly the industrial types, uh, that are factory oriented, that sort of thing, um, where they'll, they'll say, well, this person has an anger problem mm-hmm. and we need you to fix them. You know, right. we like them as a person, we like them as a worker, but they have an anger problem and people aren't getting along with them. So I need you to fix it and send them back to us. Invariably, when I have a conversation with that individual, usually in our first or second session, what they're telling me about the environment at work is that they are working very hard to set boundaries, to get their job done, to do it in an efficient way. And they're trying to bring other people on board and those people are not cooperating. And because the client is trying to make sure that things get done and people don't like it, they're saying he's got an anger problem. So that's really really a systems problem versus an anger problem, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what happens is that the person trying to affect positive change gets branded as the one with the anger issue mm. and they get sent to me. And so what, what I teach them is I do teach them anger solutions, of course, but I, I focus very much on that core piece, which is assertiveness, communication skills, how to frame your language to get people to come on board with you 
as opposed to making them feel as though you're trying to, to force them into doing something that they're not ready to do, right? So it's more about communication skills than it is about dealing with a behavior problem. It's not a behavior problem. The behaviors are things that he is trying to correct, <laughs> right? And because he's trying to correct them, but he doesn't really know how to do that, that's where the conflict comes in. So I, I've actually never had a case where people have worked in that kind of industrial or manufacturing <coughs> where the person that was sent to me was actually the problem. Mm. They were having problems because of either the system or right. other people in the organization. And so they needed to learn how to work with those people in a way that could help them to get their jobs done. And, and that certainly, it's a new twist or it's a different twist on anger solutions, but it certainly is a necessary one, I think. Which you make such a good point, right? So like you said, people wait till late stage, maybe the person is reacting more, they're trying harder and harder, they're getting you know, maybe more revved up on the inside and maybe they're butting heads a little bit more and then they get looked at the problem versus saying, okay, well, what's really happening here? And, you know, that's interesting because if you think of labor related environments, then you see more conflict, you see more, more arbitrations, you see yeah. people going out there, incidental absences go up because I can't solve the problem. All those things start to increase. So I think I, I love this, the point of view or the approach that you're looking at is from a, from a leadership perspective is what is the issue? And don't, maybe this person is a gift. They're actually showing you where a lot of the issues that are being hidden should be looked at because they're, they're, they're the symptom, but they're, they're in an environment that's showing you that things have to change. Yes. Yeah. I think it's really important too for people in leadership roles to um, set their ego aside, mm -hmm. right? Set the ego aside. It's not always about you, right? Like I, I often, when I do corporate work, I, I'm constantly reminding audiences that, look, your employer is paying you a salary to perform a certain set of tasks. And if those tasks aren't being completed, your employer has a right to be upset about that, right? Like you, you're not, you can't go to work and say, well, they should be happy I'm here, Mm -hmm. Right. If you're going to work with that kind of attitude, um, you need to check your ego. Right. We need to all check our egos at the door. I'm doing a job for my clients. And as a self-employed person, if I don't do that job and do it well, I will not have clients. Mm -hmm. But it is the same in the world of work. If you're working for someone else, your employer is your client. Right. Your employer is your client. And so you need to do those things that are required to to keep that employer happy. But the employer also has a responsibility and the employer's responsibility is to ensure that the, the people who are working for that company um, understand the vision, understand the mission, buy into it and are willing to work with the employer to do whatever it is, whether it's customer service or you know, it's international export. I don't know. I don't care what it is, but you have to buy into the vision of the owner or the management. And the best way that management can do that is to check their egos at the door and treat their people with respect, mm -hmm. hear them out and try to create a, a working environment that is healthy for everyone. It too often you know, 
the, the talk is, I guess, you know, well, everybody's so soft these days and all these sorts of, and I'm not talking about babying people and I'm not talking about, you know, being so politically correct that you can't even scratch your face without offending someone. I'm not talking about right. those sorts of things. I'm talking about respecting your fellow human being, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Respecting mm-hmm. your fellow human being enough to know that they're working for their money, just as you are working for your money. They are working to help you be successful. And so you don't want to make it difficult for the people who are contributing to your success, mm-hmm. right? You want to create an environment for them that keeps them happy and makes them loyal because a loyal employee, let me tell you something, a loyal employee, a loyal coworker, a loyal partner, a loyal ally is, is such a rare commodity. Mm-hmm. And it's a gift because it, a gift. it truly is a gift, right? So I talk a lot about authentic leadership and I work with a uh, uh, team like senior leadership teams with their direct uh, teams that they, that report to them. And the biggest thing is that people want to feel that you care and they want the, the leader to have as, as much awareness of their impact on them. Absolutely. Right. And so if I, if I'm leading from the heart, if I'm keeping my ego in check as a, as a leader and I'm trying to take different perspectives into mind, like how was your perspective different from mine? Um, and always being open, like you said, tell me more. It may not be the way I see it, but I, I I'm not understanding your, where you're coming from. And obviously you're not understanding where I'm coming from. The growth that could happen in that space is pretty amazing. Yes, absolutely. You know? Yeah. But, but I think it's having the, the wherewithal to recognize that we need, you need, you need to have those kinds, I call them more like conscious conversations. Yes. Um, and if there's been any kind of um, residual stuff that's built up, you got to clear that out first before you can Absolutely. even get there. Right. You yeah. can't just say, we're just going to all be nice after you've not been nice. Cause then that, that kind of leads you down a different path. So um, sure. I, I think you're so right. It's a lot to do with a more us being kind to people and treating people with respect, whether you're the guy open the door at the front to the, you know, the guy that's in the, the corporate tower, you're yeah. we're all people and we all want it. That same thing at the end of the day, we want to feel valuable with what we Absolutely. do. Absolutely. And if, it, if we want to perpetuate that message that every job, every vocation has value, mm-hmm. then we have to live that out, right? You have, have to live, have you have to live that vision, right? Of whatever, whatever you're, uh, you're kind of promoting out there with Julie, I, you and I had, could probably talk about lots of different topics. Like All we, day talk, long. we could talk about bullying. We could talk about, you know, union and, and management conflict. There's so much. I'm, I've, it's been a pleasure and our time has come up and I know yeah. I want to be respectful of your, your time. So for any last words that you want to share with people listening, um, I want you to tell people a bit about where they can reach you. I know you had a book there that uh, got brought in. I'd love for you to show people. Oh, I, I don't know if that's going to show up. Oh, I, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it very well here. Okay. So this is, this is my book, Anger Solutions. Um, uh, that's based on my program. I've written six other books. Um, yeah. Five other books since this one, but six, seven total. Um, and uh, this one, if you want any of my books, you want to learn more about them. Uh, I would suggest going to my website. It is www.angersolution.com. That's solution singular, angersolution.com. All my books are available there. Uh, All of the training programs that we offer, all of the corporate coaching and the individual coaching programs that we offer are also 
uh, listed on the website. And um, if anybody is interested in booking me for speaking engagements, that sort of thing, they can they can do all of that there as a one-stop shop for all the different aspects of the service that I provide. Um, but then if people are looking for counseling services, um, individual work that, I don't know if you can see that, like business card. Yes. Uh, so we are located at 1 Ormond Street South in Thorold. We've just moved in here, a brand new office for us. Um, our open house is uh, on Friday, December 13th from one till five. So if anyone's local and they'd like to pop in, have some cookies, drink some eggnog and just take a tour of the offices and find out what we, what we do here. Um, we are a bit of a boutique practice. We have the only Spanish speaking therapist in Niagara is part of our practice. So we offer services in English, Spanish, Spanish and Portuguese. And um, we have a sport therapist on site as well who works with athletes who are struggling with their mental mindset. Uh, and of course we do all the other stuff, MBA, post-trauma. I specialize in bullying and anger, obviously. And, um, and so uh, we're happy to take on new clients. And we always offer a, a complimentary consultation to anyone who wants to meet with us. That first 30 minutes is on the house. Uh, just to see if you like us, if you feel like you can trust us, because therapy will not be successful if you don't like or trust your therapist. So, Awesome. Well, thanks again. So my takeaway is, is to recognize that all of us get triggered um, and to think, like I think to think to increase that gap between the reaction. And I think, you know, obviously we all have reactions and, uh, you know, the amyg amaglia, like that... Uh, Julie talked about, I call it the alarm bell. And we have to address that, you know, if an alarm goes off right now, we're all fleeing for safety. Yes. So that's, the, that's the, the cue that you need to do something a bit different. <laughs> so every time you're able to slow, to look at what's the worst that could come from standing up for myself, or what's the, you know, best solution. Yes. In the, yeah. Right. When you, that automatically slows you down and it gives you the option of not being as reactive as all of us can potentially be at any given point. So, um, so apply some of those phenomenal things if you're needing uh, uh, issues or solutions on anger. Um, you know, the websites and things that uh, Julie's talked about will be in the, sh in the show notes and the links. And for myself, if you're needing any kind of uh, leadership training on authenticity and mental health and resilience, I, I, you can reach me at roxandorhodge.com. Okay, Julie, thanks again. And everyone have a great day and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.